Well, thank you for clapping for me and not just for Adelaide. <laughs> Last night, the only applause I received was for Adelaide, and I have nothing to do other than just being here. So uh, it's a joy to be here in Australia. I've never been here before, um, and it feels in many ways like home. So it's easy to fit into Adelaide and Australia. Uh, the warmth of your fellowship uh, has been um, outstanding, and the only thing that is odd is you do drive on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> I do want you to know that, um, but other than that, you're just doing fine. <laughs> so, um, I live in Dallas, Texas, and I base out of Dallas. I do fly to Los Angeles um, about eight times a year for various uh, board meetings and preaching assignments and to lecture at the Master's Seminary. And I do oversee the doctoral program there, the Doctor of Ministry. And if there are any preachers in the house that would like to pursue a Doctor of Ministry, I would certainly love to, to talk to you. I think we have the premier Doctor of Ministry program in the world. And the, ba- the well, thank you, Russell. I, <laughs> I didn't even say Adelaide. And, <laughs> and uh, it begins with John MacArthur himself, who's in the classroom for 40 hours. And I'm in the classroom for about 60 hours. And I pull in the greatest expositors around the world as I travel to lecture. And I just cherry pick the best of the best of the best from different seminaries and different pulpits, but they're all preachers of the Word of God. So if I can be of any uh, help or guidance to you in that, I would certainly love to be that. And you mentioned the magazine, Expositor Magazine. If you'd like a subscription, it comes out six times a year. And this year our focus is on the Reformation, and the issue that just came out this week is the preaching of the Swiss Reformation with John Calvin. And I am uh, diligently writing on airplanes and in hotel rooms presently uh, the preaching of the English Reformation. And because we are an English-speaking people, you really need to know about the English Reformation. And uh, I have a 10,000-word article I'm working on right now on uh, the Marian martyrs, uh, those who were martyred under Bloody Mary. And I keep in the front of my preaching Bible uh, a wood engraving of John Rogers, who was burned at the stake in 1555, the first Marian martyr. And it's just a reminder to me every time I open my Bible of the price to pay for the preaching of the Word of God. You need to know about these men. Um, John Piper has said, my best friends are dead men. And you need some dead men who are your best friends. And uh, the Marian Martyrs would be a wonderful place to begin. And this next issue, will, just as a footnote, will also include William Tyndale. You're familiar with the name William Tyndale. He was a giant who walked this earth. Um, He was the father of the English Reformation. He was the father of the English Bible. And he was the father of the modern English language. The very speech that you use, the words that you use, we are all indebted to William Tyndale because there would not even be an English dictionary for another 150 years. When he translated the Bible, which by the way, 90% of a King James version of the Bible is actually William Tyndale's work, who was martyred in 1536, 1611 is when the King James Version came out. So about uh, 80 years before the King James Version was even translated, William Tyndale had already done the work. And there was very little a team of 40 scholars could add to what one man alone did in back room studying over a candle. So you need to know about William Tyndale. And then the next issue will be on the Scottish Reformation and John Knox. And Knox rocks, and uh, you need for John Knox to rock your life. Um, And the past issues, the German Reformation, uh, Martin Luther, as you know, this is the 500-year anniversary of the 95 Theses being posted at the Wittenberg door. 
And before that was the pre-reformers, the issue, and we'd be glad to send you the back issues. I wrote a 10,000-word article on the father of the English pulpit, John Wycliffe, who preceded the Reformation by about 130 years. So the, the, these, as the, as the baton has been passed down to you and me, to this 21st century, as you pick up the gospel baton and run your race, there's blood on that baton. There's sweat on that baton uh, of men and women who have gone before us. Uh, the contemporary church would have the idea that the church began 10 years ago um, <laughs> when their little subculture started. And that, that is living in a hole. You don't know that you don't know. And that's a dangerous place to be. You, you, you need to see the full expanse of church history. And I know as someone who has pastored a Baptist church in the past, hey, the world's a whole lot bigger than the Baptists, okay? <laughs> Just a whole lot bigger. And independent Bible churches need to smell the coffee. And, and realize, man, there, the world is a whole lot, the body of Christ is a whole lot bigger than just independent Bible church. And, and the study of church history matures you and grows you up. And you are allowed to go up the mountaintop, I think, higher and have a broader perspective. Not a compromising, but a broader perspective of what God has done in the world what God is doing in the world, and I, I have, as long as I'm giving you this infomercial, um, uh, I have written seven biographies, little easy-to-read short biographies that you ought to read, and you can download them on Kindle while I'm preaching right now, I guess. Um, <laughs> shouldn't be giving you too many ideas. <laughs> you need to pay attention to me. But uh, I have written, I'll just tell you, the heroic boldness of Martin Luther, the expository genius of John Calvin, the unwavering resolve of Jonathan Edwards, the evangelistic zeal of George Whitfield, the daring mission of William Tyndale, the gospel focus of Charles Spurgeon, and the powerful preaching the passionate preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones. So they're, they're just so easy to read, about 150 pages and small pages. It, it gives you an introduction and an, and an access without having to read a big old thick Oxford tome on who these men were, what they believed, and how their lives impacted the world. You would be so enriched. The tide would come in in your spiritual life to walk with giants. You need to be influenced uh, by, by great men in the past. When I was in New Zealand last week preaching, uh, some men were just sharing with me, and they said, you know, we really look down upon having heroes. Um, that's the New Zealand culture. America loves to have heroes. New Zealand loves to cut down heroes. And I said, that is a sad, sad state of affairs, if that is true. I don't know that it is true. Because Paul said, you need to be an imitator of me as I am an imitator of Christ. There need to be people out ahead of you spiritually that you are coming in behind and drafting behind. And there needs to be people behind you who are following your example. That's what discipleship is, my friend. Uh, you're not an island unto yourself. Um, you need to have people who are impacting and influencing your life. Some of them are alive and some of them are dead. Or you're going to have low octane in your tank. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have not the full dynamic that needs to be happening in your spiritual life. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about, is to give you a quick walkthrough of the heroes of the faith, and you need to imitate their faith. You need to have a faith like Enoch, and like Noah, and like Abraham, and like Sarah, and like Moses, etc., etc. And they are in the Old Testament for your example, for you to follow, and they are to light your fire. 
you're not going to have your fire lit by staring into a mirror and just seeing yourself. Uh, you need to have these great men and women casting a shadow over your life. So, that's my introduction. <laughs> so, um, let me give you two verses before we get into this. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16, and 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. You can just jot that down and look at it later. Um, but Paul says, all right, since you're turning to it, I'm going to go ahead and read it. Um, but this is going back to the examples even of church history. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Paul says, therefore I exhort you. In other words, I'm not just tossing this out for you to consider. I'm after you, and I'm persuading you, and I'm exhorting you. Be imitators of me. You say, hey, wait a minute, I thought I was supposed to be looking to Jesus. Well, you are, but you're to be also looking to people who are looking to Jesus. You're to be following people who are following Jesus. Are you just going to be lost in traffic? So, and there needs to be people behind you who are following you. And in fact, they are. They just, you need to be setting a good example because none of us are an island unto ourselves. And then 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So we don't follow the, un, the unchrist-like things that we see in others. We follow the Christ-like things that we see in others. And as long as I'm on this, turn over to Philippians. This is just the warm-up session, okay? Uh, Philippians 3 and verse 17, Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So Paul is saying... You need to follow my example, and you need to follow the pattern of others who are following this very same example. And then in Philippians 4 and verse 9, this is yet another reason why we need examples in our lives of godliness. And there's no one who's arrived here today who doesn't need these examples. In Philippians 4 and verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. In other words, the God of peace will not manifest the fullness of his peace that he has for you except there be these examples of godly men and godly women and you are to learn from them and receive their instruction and hear them and imitate what you see in them. So a disciple, Jesus said in Matthew 10, after he has been fully trained, will be exactly like his teacher. So that's God's pattern for strong Christian living. So, that's why you need to be in a local church. That's why you need a godly pastor. That's why you need godly elders. That's why you need a godly Sunday school teacher. Why you need a godly small group Bible study leader. Why you need a godly mother, a godly father, a godly best friend, a godly circle of friends. We all need multiple levels. And I would encourage you not to have just one person who is this in your life because you will have not only their strengths, you will also have their weaknesses. And so you need a multitude of godly examples so that all the gaps are covered, so that it's well-rounded in your spiritual life. And I know as a young man, it's easy to get locked in on one preacher and just to kind of follow that voice and maturity is you will have a multitude of influences that are rounding you out in your Christian life. So, Selah. <laughs> um, all right, here we go. You ready? John, thank you. John chapter 8. 
I, I, I usually don't get that at home, so thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, John chapter 8, and this morning I want us to look at the next I am statement in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8 and verse 12. The title of this message could not be any more unoriginal. It is, I am the light of the world. So you see it exactly here in John 8 and verse 12. I want to begin by reading this text, and we will spend our time um, exploring what Jesus means by what Jesus says in this verse. John 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. There is no more compelling figure to follow than the Lord Jesus Christ. To follow Him is life's greatest adventure. To know Him is life's greatest privilege. To worship Him is life's greatest pleasure. To serve Him is life's greatest investment. And to obey Him is life's greatest duty. The Christian life is Christ. It's that simple. The sum and the substance of the Christian life is Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's a diminutive form of the word Christ. It means you are a little Christ. And it was first used in Acts chapter 11 as a term that the world cast upon the early believers and began to call them Christians. It was a term of derision. It was a term of mockery. It was a term of of slander because the world so looked down upon Christ as a crucified Jew who died as an utter failure to be called a Christian was to be identified with the biggest failure who ever lived. The early believers so loved the Lord Jesus Christ that this tag of, of, of mockery and taunting that was put upon them, they embraced it. And they said, we love to be identified with Christ. Call us Christian all you want. It's what it is to be a believer in Jesus Christ. It is to be a follower of Christ. And no one can follow Christ and your life remain the same. If your life has not changed, then you've never met Jesus Christ. Because to meet the risen, living, glorious Christ will radically and dramatically change and transform your life from the inside out or you have never met Jesus Christ. The passage before us bears clear witness to this truth, that if you are a follower of Christ, you are no longer walking in the dark, nor in the darkness, that you are now following Christ in the light. You have come out of the darkness, and you are now in the light if you are a true, authentic, genuine follower of Jesus Christ. No one who is following Christ remains in the darkness. And in this text, in John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus is the speaker. The place is Jerusalem. The occasion is the Feast of Tabernacles, which was an annual feast for seven days in October. This Feast of the Tabernacles was more popular and better attended than Passover or Pentecost. This was a time of In the life of Jesus, during this feast, it was a time of escalating hostility toward Him by the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. And it is reaching a fever pitch. And in the face of such opposition, with already now a death threat upon the life of Jesus Christ, because He has invaded the turf of the Pharisees, Jesus now makes this extraordinary claim. He is not preaching to the choir when he says this. 
He is saying this in the face of his enemies and those who are after him as well as to those who are in the multitude. And this tells us that Jesus was the boldest preacher who ever lived. And here he puts forward a bold claim concerning his identity to those who least believed it. And there are three things that I want you to note in verse 12. I want you to note the identification of Jesus. I am the light of the world. I want you to note the invitation of Jesus. He who follows me. And I want you to note the illumination of Jesus. He will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So let's begin at the beginning of verse 12, the identification of Jesus. And Jesus begins with a staggering self-claim. Don't, don't let this claim pass you by easily. This is a monumental claim that our Lord is saying. He says, I am the light of the world. This is jaw-dropping. When he says, I am, as we noted last night, Jesus is making a clear declaration of his own deity. He is identifying himself with the name that God has assigned for himself at the burning bush, but with Moses in Exodus 3 and verse 14, I am who I am. I want to say it again, it comes from the verb to be, and it says that everything it says that God is dependent upon no one and nothing outside of Himself. There are no props holding up God. There is nothing feeding into His personhood upon which He is dependent from outside of Himself. He is self-contained within Himself and all of His needs are met within Himself. He did not make us because there was anything lacking in His life. He did not make us because He was lonely. He had perfect fellowship within Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He made us that He might put His glory on display that His glory might be clearly seen in His redemption of unworthy, undeserving, hell-bound sinners, that He might crown His grace upon them, and that they would sing the praises of His Son throughout all of the ages to come. It's not about us. It's all about Him. The ultimate motive for our salvation is not to get us out of hell and into heaven, it is that His glory would be put on display through vessels of mercy upon whom He has placed His grace. And even upon vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, He, has, he will receive glory to Himself as His power and His patience and His wrath and His vengeance will be displayed in them. So as He says, I am the light of the world Jesus is claiming to be this God, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. As he says, I am the light of the world, he is saying every moment of every day, I am the light of the world. To every generation, on every continent, I am the light of the world. This will never be in the past tense, it will never be in the future future tense. It is always in the present tense. And as he says, I am the light of the world, he is identifying himself closely with the Father. 1 John 1 verse 5 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It's a statement of the absolute holiness of God, that he was without any blemish of darkness that He is perfect in all of His ways. But there's more to this metaphor, this imagery of light. When He says, I am the light of the world, He has in mind two 
essential truths. Light represents truth, and it represents the knowledge of God. The truth of God in the gospel, and it represents the personal knowledge of God. If you would turn back to the prologue of John's gospel in John chapter 1, this is immediately introduced to us in the opening prologue of John's gospel, the first 18 verses. As you recall, Matthew begins with the genealogy of Christ. Luke begins with the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Christ. Mark begins with Jesus at age 30 because it's presenting him as a servant and the credentials of a servant are totally unimportant. But John does not begin with Jesus at age 30 nor with his genealogy at his birth. John begins in eternity past. And in the beginning, verse 1, was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This light is the knowledge of God, And it is a personal relationship with God. And apart from this light, there is no knowledge of God. And there is no truth of God. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Better translated, the the, the darkness did not overpower it. Your translation may have that. In other words, the darkness cannot extinguish the light, but the light can extinguish the darkness. Verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And that's a little interpretive knot that has to be untied. I would say it's who who enlightens every man who is enlightened. There is no one else who can enlighten the darkened soul of man with the knowledge of God other than Jesus Christ. But there will be those who will remain in the darkness. We come then to John chapter 3, and in verse 19, we are reintroduced to this theme of the light that has come into the world. And this light is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. And as Christ has come into the world... He is representing Himself as light that is coming into a world of darkness. And as He is coming as light, He is bringing the knowledge of God and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is a pure light that is flawless and blameless. And it is absolutely perfect in the revelation of God that it is bringing. Uh, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. And so in John 3 and verse 19, John, or excuse me, John records, and I think these are the words of Christ that continue through verse 21. It's an interpretive or a translator's decision. In my translation, there are quotations around verse 19 to signify these are the continuing words of Christ. Verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Now, one thing that light does is that light exposes what is done in darkness. And light exposes the sin and the evil that is committed in the darkness. And so as Jesus comes, He brings both the saving knowledge of God to some, 
And he brings condemnation to others as light. It's like the old saying that the same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. And the same light that saves some condemns others and exposes others. And so verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light for its deeds were evil. Those who are in the darkness because of the doctrine of total depravity and the radical corruption of the human heart, as the light shines into the darkness, those who are in the darkness hate the light because they do not want to have their deeds exposed. They want to remain in the darkness because they love the darkness more than they love the light. Verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light. Now just ponder that for a moment. You want to know what's wrong with Australia? You want to know what's wrong with the United States? You want to know, want to know why Europe is about to implode? Why, why London is a ticking time bomb exploding? It's because men hate the light and will not come to the light because their deeds are evil. More irrational than a child who is afraid of the darkness is an adult who is afraid of the light. So verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. He doesn't want to find God any more than a thief wants to find a policeman. Verse 21, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So this theme has been already laid in the Gospel of John. We've had a, a heads up on this before we even get to chapter 8. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 9, after chapter 8, Jesus will heal a blind man. And it is a picture of the new birth. It is a picture of the reason for which He has come into the world that those who live in darkness like a blind man will now have the light of truth and the light of the knowledge of God come shining into their once darkened life. And that's what happens in regeneration. There is a, a shaft of light that is that comes bursting out of heaven and shines into a darkened heart. It passes over other darkened hearts in a family or in a neighborhood or in a school. And it, with pinpoint precision, it, it, it shines into a darkened heart. And in that moment, that person comes alive unto God because the light shines into that darkened heart. Now come back to John 8 and verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the one who has come to bring salvation and the knowledge of God to spiritually darkened souls. And please note, he says, I am the light, not a light. Delight. And again, we are confronted with the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ. There is no other light of the knowledge of God. There is no other light of the salvation that is from God through Christ other than in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is not one drop of saving grace outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter said, there is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He is the light 
of the world. And when he says of the world, he is stretching beyond the borders of Israel. That he is not merely the light of the nation of Israel, but that he is the light of the Gentile world as well. In other words, there's not one way for a Jew to be saved and a different way for a Gentile to be saved. There's not one way to be saved in the Old Testament and a different way to be saved in the New Testament. There is only one light, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. There's only one light, whether you live in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. There is only one light of salvation, and it is in Jesus Christ. Anytime, anywhere, anyone has ever been saved, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. From Adam to the last of the elect who will ever be saved. The prophets foretold this. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, He is the light to the nations. In that messianic servant song. In Isaiah 51, in verse 4, is a light to the peoples, referring to the Gentile peoples. And at His birth in Luke 2, verse 32, He is the light of revelation to the Gentiles. What this is saying when it says He is the light of the world, let me tell you what it's not saying, then I will tell you what it is saying. It is not saying that everyone in the world will be saved. What it is saying is that anywhere, anytime, anyone will ever be saved, wherever they are in the world, it will be by this light. This is why we're so committed to world evangelization. This is why we're so committed to world missions. Because those who have never heard of the name of Jesus Christ are doomed and damned and going to hell. They must have the light of the world in order to be saved. Or it would be cruel of us to even ever send a missionary and bring about the possibility of condemnation. No, they're already under the wrath of God. They are in darkness. They must have the light if they are to be in union with God through Jesus Christ. So this entire world is shrouded in spiritual darkness, thick spiritual darkness that has brought about a total ignorance of God. And Jesus has come shining into this world to bring the true light of the knowledge of God. And that is why in the book of Revelation, the church is represented as a lampstand. We are not the light. We need to stop talking about ourselves and stop talking about our lampstand and start talking about the light. And it is the function and purpose of the church to hold forth the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we talk about ourselves as a church and our ministries in more glowing terms than we speak of the one of whom we are to speak of, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're just a mere lampstand, a common piece of furniture. Christ is the light of the world. And God will honor the church that holds forth the light of the world. This is the identification of Jesus Christ. And may God use you and may God use me to make much of Him and to hold forth the light of Jesus Christ and to have less of an eye disease of I, myself, and me as we talk. Even some of our Christian testimonies have too much of me and not enough of Jesus. Now second, we've seen the identification of Jesus. He is the light of the world. And there is no other light for this world. Second, the invitation of Jesus. And Jesus now states in the middle of verse 12 
that it is not enough for a person to know about this light. They must actually become a follower of this light. It's one thing to know about the light. It's something else to be a follower of the light. And so Jesus now goes on to say in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Now here it is. He who follows me. That is a statement. It is also an invitation by Jesus to follow Him. The necessity of following the Lord Jesus Christ. And the number one most repeated invitation that Jesus gave in the four Gospels is to follow me. Jesus said to the fishermen on the sea of, by the Sea of Galilee, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus said to Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, Follow me. And Jesus has said, If any man shall come after me, he must deny himself and take up a cross and follow me. This is synonymous with saving faith. To follow Christ is synonymous with saving faith. It is a metaphor for believing in Jesus Christ. And notice he says, follow me. He doesn't say follow the church. It says follow Christ. There's no salvation in the church. It says follow me. And if you follow Christ, He'll put you into a church. But there's no salvation in the church. Salvation is in Christ. The person and work of Christ. That is why He says follow me. He who follows me will pursue a new life direction. There will be a break from the past. There will be new purpose. There will be new loyalty. There will be a new allegiance to Christ. There will be a change of masters. You will no longer be a servant of and a slave of sin, but you will now be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ as you follow Him. To follow Christ implies and necessitates a decisive commitment of your life to Jesus Christ. It necessitates the entire submission of your life to Christ. He will not follow you. He will not be an add-on to your life. He will not be a, a, a U-Haul trailer behind your life. He will be in the driver's seat or He will not be along for the ride. We must follow Him. It's in the present tense. Look at it. He who follows me, not followed in the past, not will follow in the future. He who follows me, present tense, it speaks of a, a lifestyle of daily following Christ. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, never off duty, always following Christ. Not just on Sunday morning, but on Monday morning and Thursday night and Saturday night, always following Christ. This means we go where He leads us. We do what He requires. We believe what He teaches. We obey what He commands. We love what He loves. We reject what He rejects. We sacrifice what He demands. We are so one with Christ. And He doesn't tell us where all this will take us. And you and I, as modern-day Christians, if this were a job that we were uh, signing up for, we would want to know what are the benefits and where will this take us and what's the five-year plan and what's the ten-year plan and when will my promotions come, etc., etc., etc. Jesus doesn't give that. He just says, follow me. You don't need to know where. You don't need to know how. All you need to know is me. Follow me. It is a walk of faith and it is a life of faith as we now enter into partnership and fellowship with Jesus Christ. We walk with Him. We are united to Him. 
We are in fellowship with Him. We do not get ahead of Him. We do not lag far behind of Him. We are following in His hip pocket. We are following after Christ. James Montgomery Boyce, the great expositor who died in the year 2000 and went to be with the Lord, buy every single book you can possibly buy that was ever written by James Montgomery Boyce. He is an expositor of expositors. He is a theologian of theologians. He is a champion of champions. He has written a book called The Call of Christ's Discipleship. And in the opening chapter, he gives five words that define what it is to follow Christ. You've got to jot these five words down. And you ought to use them as a checkpoint in your own spiritual life to determine, am I a true follower of Christ? Am I really following Christ? Or am I just following myself? Like a dog chasing his own tail. Here are the five words. Number one, obedience. Boyce says, without obedience, there is no real Christianity. That's what it means to follow Christ. That you're following His Word. You're following His commandments. He is defining for us how we must live. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. The defining mark of true disciples of Christ who are actually following Christ is not the profession of our lips. It is the obedience of our will. Number one, obedience. In 1 John 2, verse 3, also needs to be heard. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep His commandments. No lifestyle of obedience. No genuine salvation. Obedience. Number two, repentance. Boyce writes, Jesus never took one step in any sinful direction. If you are following Christ, you are moving away from sin. You and I will never totally reach sinless perfection in this world. We will not become sinless, but we will sin less. We must renounce sin. And that is what Peter called on the day of Pentecost. What must must we do to be saved? Repent. All true followers of Christ are repenters, are lifelong repenters. Third, submission. Boy says to follow Jesus was to submit to him. Matthew 11 verse 28, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Now listen to the next verse, verse 29, take my yoke upon you. Now what do you think a yoke is? A yoke is what was put around the neck of a burden of beast, a beast of burden, an oxen, so that the master would now be able to direct the ox's life. It is submitting to the authority of a master. And to be stiff-necked meant you would not submit to a yoke being put around your neck. You were hard-hearted and stiff-necked. You would not submit. But a true follower of Christ submits to His Lordship beginning at the moment you follow Christ. Fourth is the word commitment. Boyce writes, it is impossible to follow Christ without being committed to Him. I am committed to my wife, and my wife is committed to me. Would our commitment to Christ be less than our commitment to our own spouse? When I stood at the head of the church and my precious bride came down the center aisle, I was renouncing any other relationship that I will be exclusively committed to this woman, 
in sickness and in health, death do us part. I told her before we got married, never divorce, possibly death, but no divorce. I, I am making a commitment to you. And I want you to make a commitment to me. And this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I am burning every bridge back to the world. I'm renouncing every other life pursuit and passion, and I am exclusively committing my life to Jesus Christ. I'm all in with Christ. And then the fifth word is perseverance. Boyce writes, following is not an isolated act. In other words, it's not just the first step on entering in the kingdom, and then you can just wander all over the highway and go whichever way you want to go once you're in the kingdom. No, it works like this. A narrow gate leads to a narrow path. A broad gate leads to a broad path. You can't mix and match. You can't go through a narrow gate and then walk a broad path. It's impossible. Sometimes people ask me, uh, how can I have assurance of salvation? And I will just simply say, what path are you on? That will answer which gate you went through. You have to be on the narrow path if you walk through the narrow gate. And it's a lifetime. It's not a weekend commitment. It's perseverance throughout the entirety of one's life. There's no going back. Now, the dog returns to its vomit, and the pig returns to the mud, but not a Christian. We don't have an appetite for vomit and mud anymore. We have an appetite for the bread of life. Boyce writes, it is a lifetime commitment that is not fulfilled here until the final barrier is crossed. The Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ. For you to live is Christ. And if you fill in that blank any other way, for you to die is loss. Only if you live for Christ is to die gain. So I want to ask you, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? The question is not, are you a church attender? Are you a church member? The question is not, do you own a Bible? The question is not, were you raised in a Christian home? The question is not, did you go to a Christian camp? The question is not, do you have a Christian spouse? The question on the table is, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you moving out by faith, day by day, in allegiance to Christ and following where He leads and doing what He requires? This is what it is to be saved. This is Christianity 101. This is kindergarten Christianity. This isn't some upper-level Ph.D. program for a few men to get together on Saturday morning and advance to some elevated state. This is for anyone and everyone who is even sniffing the kingdom of heaven. Everyone who is saved is following Jesus Christ. Are you, sir? Are you, ma'am? Following Jesus Christ. Now, finally, the illumination. Of Jesus. It'll be a negative and then a positive. Excellent teachers speak with negative denial and positive assertion. There's no room for misunderstanding. There's no wiggle room. There's no way to think around the statement. There's no way to come up with exception clauses. There's no way to come up with excuses. Great Bible teachers, great theologians, and the greatest of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
speaks with negative denial, positive assertion. What he is about to say is not hard to understand. It may be hard to swallow, but it's not hard to understand. So here's the negative denial. Will not. And great Bible teachers start with the negative and move to the positive. Will not walk in the darkness. You cannot follow Christ and walk in the darkness when He's the light of the world. If you're following Christ, you're walking in the light. 1 John 1, verse 7. So when He says, will not walk in the darkness, walk speaks, it's a metaphor of daily lifestyle. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's your daily routine. It's, it's where you go and what you do. And those who follow Christ cannot, they cannot, they cannot walk in the darkness. It's speaking of not a one step, it's speaking of the big snapshot of your life, the big picture of your life, what you are characterized in one sentence. Their lives will be dramatically altered. Ephesians 5 verse 8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So you no longer can pursue sin. You have been delivered from a lifestyle of sin. You have been rescued from ruin and put on a totally different path. And if you should fall back into a sin like that you once lived in, the Lord loves you so much, He will discipline your hide. And in America, we will say, He'll take you to the woodshed. For every son whom the Lord receives, He disciplines. And then the next line, a quote from Proverbs 3, 11 and 14 that is found in Hebrews 12, verse 6, is He scourges every son whom He receives. And the word scourges means literally, it comes from the same root word, uh, Scourges is a verb. It comes from the same noun for whip. It's a beating. Yeah, it's a beating. So, if you can go back to your sin and the Lord not severely whip you, you can be assured you're an illegitimate child and you are not a part of the family. But if you go back to that sin and He disciplines you hard, it's not a little slap on the hand, it's being beaten with whips, then you can have the assurance of your salvation that you belong to the Lord. So we'll not walk in the darkness. It's not going to happen. He's not going to let you hang out in the darkness. He's going to drive you back to the light. The pain will be greater than the pleasure of the sin. That's why it has to be painful. And for those of you who are parents here today, you need to understand that you need to teach your children there are painful consequences to wrong decisions. And that's the purpose of discipline. That there are painful consequences. And better for it to start when they're little, when they're trying to stick a finger into an electrical socket, than when they're behind a car out on the open highway with their buddies. And now the positive. We'll not walk in the darkness, but, and as Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, praise God for the buts in the Bible. But, we'll have... And there's a certainty about this. Will have. Not might have, could have, should have, will have. The light of life. This, this light is the life 
It brings the life of God. It brings the knowledge of God. It brings the relationship with God. And here again is an echo of what we saw last night in John 6.35. I am the bread of life. He is the light of life. This light is spiritual life. It is supernatural life. It is eternal life. It is abundant life. It is light within us. It is the knowledge of God. It is the mind of Christ. It is the indwelling of the Spirit. And without this life, we're in total darkness. We are in a dark room as a blind man with blindfold, blindfolders on and the lights turned out and it's midnight. It is the darkness of dark. And in the new birth, when we become a follower of Christ, we go from darkness to light. I conclude with 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. I begin in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, the God of this world, we know who that is, Satan, the evil one, the liar, Beelzebub, the prince of this world, the God of this age, the slanderer. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It is the darkness of dark to be an unbeliever. You are kept in chains of darkness. And you cannot see the light. But look at verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. Speaking of Genesis 1, verse 3. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And He created light, ex nihilo, out of nothing. The God who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I'll tell you a far greater miracle than when God created physical light is every time God creates spiritual light and causes that light to shine into the darkness of a heart. And if you're a follower of Christ this morning, that's what He's done in your life. And it's not because you were smarter. In fact, it was in spite of your intelligence, not because of it. For God has hidden it from the wise and the prudent, and He has revealed it unto babes. It's because God has sovereignly ordained that the light would shine into your life. And you see what your own sister doesn't see. You see what your father-in-law doesn't see. You see what your next door neighbor doesn't see is because God had mercy on your soul. And there was a supernatural light, like a lightning bolt out of a cloud that struck your heart and brought the knowledge of God. What an incredible thing it is to be a follower of Christ. And we now walk in the light. 
and we no longer have a home in the darkness. We now live in the light. Let us pray. And after I pray, Alex will come and make an announcement, and then we'll have a a 30-minute break. Father in heaven, these words of Christ are so profound, so far-reaching, so deep, so high, that we can hardly get our arms around it, yet, in a sense, a child can understand this. Lord, continue to open our eyes and our understanding, expand our insight into this extraordinary statement, I am the light of the world. Thank you for shining into the darkness of our soul that we might now become followers of the light. Father, seal this to our hearts. Do not let Satan snatch up the seed that has been sown. Seal it, cement it to every heart here today. In Jesus' name, amen.